Tiger Lee, thank you for coming on my podcast. You help children with their trauma through therapy. Thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you for having me. Did you know that's what you do? <laughs> I'm shocked that I'm so happy to be doing what imagine, I love doing. So Imagine if we had that short of a memory or we could do something like that where we just forgot everything and then I tell you and you're like, oh yeah, I do like doing that. Listen, after that 30 second meditation, I feel like it's possible. You know, like you open your eyes, you're fresh, you're like, oh, I'm reborn again. Mm, mm, you almost forget your history. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful. You've got your own podcast too, point I people do. to it. Um... It's called Tiger Lee Podcast uh, on iTunes. It was called Moongasms. Which is your book. Which is my book. Um, but I thought it was too, too confusing. Mm. The book and the podcast under the same name. So I can't remember how we connected, but I enjoyed the fact that we did. And I love our regular catch-ups because you're, you're, you're very, very smart. And you understand the psychology of inner child, inner reality, inner adult in a human being <laughs> you would never fucking clue about pigs and monkeys and animals though. none oh no. a little is it animal psychologists i wonder i i do know that i had a friend once upon a time who um her dogs were not well somehow and they used to get weekly acupuncture sessions Great. for their dogs and fucking luxury yeah <laughs> that's amazing those dogs are treated real well <laughs> so you why did you fall into it? Or why do you like looking after children's mental well-being, particularly from trauma? Mm. So I think I started, well, I started as an educational director of a kindergarten. And mm. I did that for six years. And it was like Steiner Montessori. And it was a beautiful experience where I was teaching kids. But I, was all, I always found myself drawn to the kids that had present. Uh, were presenting with behaviours that felt... Um, Problematic? Yeah, I, I guess for other people, you know, and, mm. I, and I looked at how other staff members were relating to these kids and it was always... There was always this idea of, oh, this kid needs to be assessed. They need to be um, diagnosed. Maybe they're on the spectrum. Maybe they've got ADHD. Maybe they need to be medicated. And my approach was always like, that is such a last resort. Let's mm. really look at you know, a holistic approach. What is this kid actually going through? You know, what is this kid going through at home? What's happening in their life? Because that's going to be a contributing factor as to why they're playing up at school. Mm. Um, And so I actually started studying journalism when I first got to uni. And through that realization, I switched and went to study undergrad psych. Um, And I guess it's always related to our own trauma that we go through whether it's you know um like my my history of of trauma is very different to the clients that I work with Mm. currently um but I think we all experience it we all experience similar emotions hurt pain anguish anxiety um disconnect and I, I I love that I get to be a part of um facilitating someone else's healing process and getting them to reconnect with themselves amazing so you initially saw it like it's like a root and instead of like um, chopping off the ends or like healing the tip of the root you go down to the absolute where it's the problem or the issue or the trauma sprung from problems even a bad word isn't it it's like dysfunction or what would you even call it um i think that i would probably say that it's yeah, it's hard. I think I've, for, for, for a couple of years now, have felt it really... Um, we look at healing as something that's fixing something that's broken and really um, it's a beautiful thing that's happening even though it's a difficult experience. So there's this Japanese um, art called... Oh, the one with the painted gold, the broken... Yeah, I Kintsuji. Love yeah. And I think that's such a beautiful art. Oh. So they, you know, any broken pottery, they put back together with gold um, markings and it actually celebrates the fractures and the history of that bowl and what a beautiful thing and so I'd rather Mm. look at healing and look at that process of healing trauma especially within children as what are the strengths of my narrative so these experiences aren't who I am Mm. but they have helped me get to where I am now and where I will be going man I fucking needed to hear that right now Mm. with some shit I'm going down with yeah. Yeah, that's really, really, really a good reminder. It's 
it's like seeking the opportunity to strengthen and grow and it can be cliched but and it has been for me for the last few months because i haven't realityed it but right then it wasn't a cliche it was like oh yeah well seek that seek the gold that's it it's the it's the truth and i think that you know whether you're a child or an adult you you have that initial um like everyone has that desire to be seen to be understood to be loved and I believe that from a very young age, because we're so reliant on our parents um, to do that for us, because it's our survival mechanism, like as mammals, we're the, we're the only animals that, the only mammals that like take so long to detach really? from parents. Like if you think about it, we're the ones that are still having milk and we're adults and you know, we're, how long does it take us to walk? Like you watch an elephant being born. Wait, you're not talking about mummy's milk. I ain't still having my mummy's milk. Aren't you? I am. <laughs> is, that, is that not everyone? No, not everyone's doing that. But you know what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you look at an elephant that's born and it can walk yeah, within like a few hours. Yeah. Bang. Like yeah, cats, it takes cats some... are out on their own within a couple of days. That's it. I don't know. I have no idea. Actually, I've just made that up. I assume well, they would dogs, be. for example, I think dogs will be sheltered for like maybe a week or two. And then maximum a month. Yeah. Right. <laughs> We're just making up stats now. It's good. <laughs> but yeah, I get the point. But they, they also live right. less long. Some of them. Some of them. Yeah. Right. But anyway, point is we My fucking point attached. Is we are attached to our parents based on our needs of survival. Mm. Where was I going with that? You were, you were talking about how we're, um, human culture is quite dysfunctional in the fact that we don't have any coming of age or kind of oh, um, right. healing. Being, got it. Got I got it. I'm onto it. So being seen, being understood and being loved. And we're so seeking external, externally for that to be validated. And I think that our journey as people um, is to realize that like as pure as we are in that source, we only need to be seen to be understood and be loved by ourselves first and then by others. And so that journey for me is still ongoing, obviously. Um <clears throat> And as mammals, we're cohabitators, we're co-soothers, we want to connect, we want to, you know, have that journey together. Um, It's like that into the wild quote that I butcher every time (laughs) I think about it. But it's like, you know... Go for it, go butcher, get your (laughs) knife out. I don't want to do it again. Do it. (laughs) Can you look it up? It's something about like, you know, shared joy and whatever. That's a proper butcher. <laughs> I told you I was Shared joy and whatever into the wild. <laughs> uh, we got into what the wild quotes. Happiness is only real when shared. Thank you. Is that's that it? it? Is that really it? Yeah, that's oh. it. Shared joy okay. and whatever. Happiness is only real when shared. So I don't necessarily believe that that's 100% the truth, but it's definitely... Um, it definitely gives us an idea of the weight of that, you know, and wanting to experience life with other people. But I, I guess I want to create um, in my work a sense of being able to do that first for yourself and having having children be self-motivating, mm. self-healing, self-reliant first and then being able to... So if you had to draw a picture of what a functional symbiotic society would look like it's where every individual would be self-sustaining their sense of fulfillment and worthiness and then going into the world so yeah i guess so because when we look at like sorry just (laughs) bumping this mic um when we look at attachment right and we look at marie ainsworth and balby so they came up with this theory of attachment and you've got four different types of attachment but essentially there's two you're either securely attached as a child or you've got insecure attachment. Um, they've evolved this theory over years and years and years and now it's not like this like sentence of like either you're secure or you're not, but it looks at um, adaptive coping, I guess, and what we, what we use to cope in life. And so the securely attached kids are the, are the kids that are born to parents that are very attuned to their needs, that respond quite well, that make eye contact, um, if anyone is interested, there's a there's an amazing video on YouTube called Still Face, and it's it shows this mother with her one year old, 
and the um, the symbiotic relationship between her facial expressions and then she looks away and she comes back with just a still face and you see the distress in this child. Oh, wow. And then how she comes back and she smiles and she coos and she responds to the child and the child is relieved. And that is just based on facial expressions. And so you think about trauma, it doesn't have to be, you know, growing up in, you know, a, f- a home with family violence or growing up, you know, There's in a whole poverty. Spectrum. There's a whole spectrum. Um, and I guess the kids that are securely attached have parents that are attuned um, that also don't look at their kids as extensions of themselves, that their su- the child's success is my success as a parent and mm. the child's failure is my failure as a parent. They look at their children as gifts mm. and how can I guide this beautiful gift in mm. a way that I can create autonomy for this child mm empowerment for this child to go out but still have a secure base within me to come back to Mm. you know and it's that symbiosis of you know being together and coming away and knowing that there's safety and Mm. you know autonomy and then we look at adult relationships and the kids that are securely attached as children grow up to be adults who are quite securely attached and will will relate to their partners in a very different way to I guess, individuals who have gone through... Um, more severe trauma, yeah. more insecure. Well, even just like general insecure attachment where they have, have a parent who's a bit aloof or a bit neglectful or mm. a bit narcissistic or a bit, um, you know, who sits on their phone all the time and isn't present or a parent that travels all the time whatever it is for that child. And so they learn to cope. Okay, I need to be self-reliant. I can't become attached to anyone. Mm. So I'm going to avoid connection. Mm. Or, you know, they'll be overly codependent where they'll want to be in relationships and need to, you know, Mm. constantly be connected because they're scared of the loss of connection or scared of abandonment or whatnot. And, I mean, there's so many questions to go. One, one is like, how much does that impact a child compared to cultural or religious or like growing up in a cult or growing up in a particular part of town that creates trauma? And, and what are the most influential years of that child? So if we look at attachment, I think that the most influential years are zero to three. Right. That's when that attachment relationship is quite formed. So... Um, there's a couple things on that. So there was an orphanage in, I think it was Russia, and they had this group of children that weren't touched at all, like did had no physical contact, mm. and they had so many issues growing up and as adults in terms of addiction, in terms of, you know, and that was based on them growing up in a culture where from those ages they weren't physically held. Mm. So that's first about just physical contact and being you know, warmed. Mm. Um, And then, of course, you know, culturally, it definitely comes into play your cultural context and what you grow up in because what is completely normal in India, right, which is to live in a family with your parents and your grandparents and your, you know, your siblings and your aunts and your uncles and everyone's taking care of you and there's, like, community here. When you're left with someone that's not your primary caregiver, there's a you know, there's a strain on that attachment. And Mm. so that can be difficult. Mm. You know, we're growing up in a society, I guess, I grew up in a society where we're in little boxes, Mm. you know, and we're not reliant on community and we're not reliant on that, um, I guess, communal connection. and, And so that can be hard. Whereas on the other opposite end, if you're growing up in a cult or you're growing up, that is, of course, going to play into it. Mm. How much do those things, society-wise, affect us in our teenage years, for example? Like, because, I, I mean, I grew up in the UK and I felt, I feel my teenage years really influenced me in terms of where I feel secure and safe and at home and, and, and all those kind of secure attachments and familiarity. And so I feel a bit foreign being in Australia even though I've been in Australia for like 12 years. Okay, so I'll ask you then, what was it um, that created a sense of security and safety for you in your teens? What, what was the, the things that you saw around you that were creating that for you? Um, uh, my house, my home, 
Uh, my the, the streets that I knew and were familiar with, the supermarkets that I know my way around. Yeah. <laughs> um, just those basic things. But then also the trauma was more like seeing like dodgy like townies and chavs beating people up and always looking out for guys that wanted to fight. And that was a, like that created a lot of fear and where I've almost got this complex now of like hyper security awareness. Oh, totally. That's of, a definite. Um you know, we look at trauma and there are typical symptoms of trauma, right? And hypervigilance is one of them right. like you're anticipating. And you actually fantasize about, I can sometimes daydream about like a, like I could, you could lose me for about 20 seconds now. And I'm, I've, I've just played out of my head. What would happen if two people ran in with knives, how I'd, how I'd defend you, what I'd do to them, how I'd protect myself, where we'd run, like a whole escape strategy. I play out in my whole head. It almost like a, um, my brain exercise in itself to be secure in the fact that it could do it or something. But that's it, right? Like if we look at attachment, like I said, it's a coping strategy, right? So when you go through trauma, you develop a sort of coping strategy. So hypervigilance would be one of them because you need to be alert all the time. You've got adrenaline and cortisol running through your body all the time. And Mm. so you are hypervigilant, you know, and that is, an amazing thing that our brain does to us is that when we've got these kind of um, chemicals that are firing, our brain goes into, cool, I'm going to, we're wired to survive. So what a brilliant thing your brain does. But now it's redundant. It's like, it's the intellect gets mistaken in that, that biochemistry is like running on overload. And that's what anxiety is. Totally. And so there's this thing called somatic experiencing. Um, Oh, is that what I do in a daydream? No. No. So daydreaming is a, a definite like um, symptom of, I mean, obviously. It's a stressful daydream, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not, but it is, it comes up as symptoms of hypervigilance, daydreaming, checking out, whatever. Hmm. Um, but Peter Levine came up with this, um, I guess, technique called somatic experiencing. And it's all about looking at how trauma stores itself in the body and how to release it. And so we're so attached to our mind and memories. And so that's where you go with it. And he gets you to kind of identify what's going on for you in your body just on a physiological level. So so you identify, okay, mm. I can feel like my heart rate increasing. Mm. I mm. can feel like I'm sweating. I have all these symptoms of anxiety, but rather than attaching to the thought of why, I can just release it okay. without letting it store. So the other day we were sitting and you were talking about the gazelle that just shakes yeah. shakes off their stress. Their stress. They've been ran by a cheetah. Right. So he uses the example of, yeah, actually he uses that example of a... <laughs> weird (laughs) of a tiger right and and that you know straight away animals will de-stress by movement Mm. we have a fight flight or freeze response and so as children with who are experiencing trauma if we can't fight because we're too young and we can't flee because we're too young and there's no safety what do we do we freeze Mm. and that stores itself and Mm. so then you get into a situation where you're triggered, for example, and everything that you have felt Ooh. in that moment of freeze comes back alive. That, well, that was literally what my panic attack was when I had right. it, like in November. It was, it was the purging of all that contained anxiety, fucking flying out my, through my pores, literally shaking my body. Isn't that, isn't that strange? Like it came out in a massive, and, and what a blessing that was because it bit one big release in a short period of time. <laughs> but it's, it's really true. And I think also, you know, like I said to you, when you were going through it, like my panic attacks when I went through them were the biggest blessing for me because our mind-body connection is huge. And, you know, when, our, when we're ignoring certain things or we're ready to start dealing with them, but we've kind of like shut it down on an intellectual level, our, our physical body will say, hey, now you're, you want to deal with this now you're ready and so it does sometimes creates it in that way so that we can bring it to the surface and figure out creative ways to release that trauma whether it's through therapy whether it's through movement whether it's I mean there's a million different therapies you could do isn't there and I'd love to hear a few of your personal ones and ones that you give to children as well in a moment I mean for me mine are meditation twice a day I feel like being still I 
release stress from my anatomy, stored stress, mm. and just just by allowing myself to feel things without and not act on them, it just kind of purges out, or I feel feel a bit agitated. Another one is um, as soon as I feel it, to sit down, shut my eyes, and go into it willingly. Say I'm here to feel you, and I embrace it. Another one is inner child work, is where like I bring my three-year-old self into the room and ask him how he's feeling and then allow him to feel whatever he wants to feel and then be a parent or a father or a dad to him in order to give him security and self-soothe him etc but I find it's like last night for example I was kept up with quite a bit of anxiety because I'm quite stressed I've got a lot of things I've got too many things on at the moment and I need to cut kids drop some off so my brain I literally felt when you talk about that the symptom of you, my brain felt inflamed mm. and I don't know if it's because of my diet at the moment I haven't been as considerate of what I'm eating or whatnot. but I, I, I felt my, in, in my head and, it, and then that made me anxious and then like the anxious thoughts started happening I was like how do I turn that off because that's in the location where I'm, I'm, I can turn it off it's in my brain like if it was in my foot <laughs> I'd be able to control it <laughs> yeah I get that so, so how would you in, the, in that situation how would, how would you encourage me to go into the sensation of the discomfort in my brain yeah so I guess for me it's like we make links you know we we all we're always making links and um when I had my first panic attack I was I was like I don't know what's going on I don't know where it's coming from I don't know what's what's happening to my body I can just feel all these Mm. things and I'm going insane Mm. like that was my thought process Mm. And after a while, I started observing. I was fearful that I was going to experience it again. That was definitely a thing. And then it would bring it on again. Mm. And I would feel it again. And then I remember, like, mm. I had to cut out coffee for a little bit because the symptoms of an, a panic attack and what happens to you physio- physiologically when you're having a panic attack are really similar to what happens to your body when it reacts to caffeine. Mm. You know, your heart rate increases, you start sweating, you're quite alert, but like it's jittery and you feel. And, and almost like. The association of of that feeling just on a physiological level made me think that I was having a panic attack. And the more you become familiar and in tune with your body, the more you can recognize, okay, what's actually going on for me is my heart rate is increasing. So how do I slow down my heart rate? Through breath work. Okay, what else do I notice that's going on for me? And I guess when it comes to your mind, it's a lot harder, right? Because we can feel our heart. Put some ice cubes on it. (laughs) Sit there and just like cucumbers on the eyes and you'll be fine. Put your head in a freezer, yeah. Yeah, no. But I think with the mind, right, meditation is probably key. But in... Some people find it really difficult to meditate. Some oh, yeah. people find it really difficult when you're going through a oh, panic so attack <laughs> to like sit there and shut off your mind. It's really difficult. Or, or, or be still with your mind right. in chaos. So then I like to bring it back to my body, right? Like if there's a mind-body connection, then how can I move my body in a way that my focus is then on my body and on my physicality and being present with myself in that way and shift my focus from my thoughts. So Right, yeah. Actually, my friend Charlie um, Goldsmith, who I've mentioned before on this podcast, he taught me a similar thing, like of moving your energy or your awareness from your head into your heart space and just bringing it down, having all your awareness on your heart space and then enliven your consciousness in that field. And some people, like, he's so talented because he, he practices it all the time, mm. like, just out of curiosity. So it's like an exercise muscle for him. But for me, it's a bit more, and for a lot of people, I think it's more challenging. But that's essentially what you're saying is, like, shifting your awareness around your body, right? Well, yeah, shifting your awareness around your body. But if you can't even do it with your awareness, get up and move. Like, there's a thing that Michaela Bohm came up with called nonlinear movement. And it's mm. similar to somatic experiencing where you just, like, put on some music and just move your body in whatever way it needs to move. And that way your focus is now just on flowing and on movement and whatever you're going to release, you release. And rather than feeling like you have to control everything, Mm. actually relinquish control and just move. Mm. And that movement and that energy, whether you know what happens in your body or not, you're actually shifting. This is why yoga is such a huge meditative practice. It's kind yeah. of like, yeah, it's letting your body speak. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And the body does speak. Like, 
There's a guy called Gabor Mate and he talks about, he wrote a book called uh, When the Body Says No. And he talks all about disease. The guy from Little Britain's, <laughs> the prequel to my for Little Britain doing computer says no. <laughs> okay, not that. Yeah. But maybe similar, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. The body anyway, says no. Yeah, and he talks about disease in the body and how it's created. And often we look at autoimmune diseases and cancers that form and it's often forming what he said because he worked 11 years or 16 years in palliative care and he kept seeing a trend of different cancers and different autoimmune diseases being linked to emotion suppression right that if you're not talking about your emotions and you're holding and you're freezing and you've got all this stuff and you're not releasing it the body ends up creating disease because there's disease and through this book you realize how amazing it is to just release you know Mm. So I started working with my anger because I'm like, generally was like, I'm not an angry person. I'm just like totally at peace. Yeah, yeah. yeah often the I get age. sad and like whatever. And then last year I was like, I'm fucking angry. Yeah, man. Holy shit. I'm like yeah. really angry. And how do I release that in a healthy way? Yeah, and yeah. thank goodness I did that work for myself yeah. because I have a lot of kids come through the practice and oh. they're angry. And now I can empathize and now mm. I can relate. And, and you can I- speak from experience totally. rather than just giving advice. That's, That's it. Awesome. I, anger is a big one for me as well that I've allowed myself to do. My friend Luke Wallace is a fantastic osteo and healer. He said, just feel anger. You're, you're not allowing yourself to feel anger because I was stopping myself because I thought mm. that it was pain underneath and so I should just go straight to the pain. I was intellectualizing it and I wasn't just allowing it. So the other... You know, Actually, earlier today, I've, well, the last two days, I've been pretty angry about something, and I'm just sitting with it and being, I'm fucking pissed about this. It's really annoying me, and I can justify it in my brain and go, well, it's all right, it's because this, this, and this, and I did something similar, and that caused them to feel this, this, that. But really, I'm just pissed, and I'm angry about it, and I'm, I'm just going to stay with it. <laughs> Do you know how, how much quicker it then dissipates because you give it voice? Mm. So I had a, a kid that I was working with, and... She was so angry, but she never presented as angry. She was just over-compliant. Everything's fine. Everything's good. I'm amazing. All all good. And I was like, you're not fine. You've been through a really hard time and you're angry. And I get that. So I said to her, you know, do you ever feel angry? And she's like, no. And I was like, okay, I'm going to mirror your behavior. So I was like, okay, neither. And then she's like, okay. And I was like, okay, cool. You cockatooed her. Yeah, yeah. And then she's like, this is really annoying. And I was like, yes, she's releasing it, right? So I was like, is it? And she's like, yeah, (laughs) this is ridiculous. I don't understand what this is. This is a bad session. And I was like, okay. And she got so angry and she's like, I'm really angry right now. And I was like, I see that. Do you want to take this pencil? And, and stab my of paper. Eyes out. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm encouraging kids to do. Just go for it. No, and I said, just scribble on the paper until it breaks. And she's like, okay, I will. And she was like, scribbling and scribbling and scribbling. And all of a sudden, the paper tore. And she looked at me and she's like, that felt amazing. How old is she? Nine. Yeah. And I was like, awesome. And then she's like, can I tear it up now? And I was like, yeah, 100%. So I'm getting my kids in these sessions to release their anger in a really healthy way. Like, my, my rules in, this, in these sessions are you don't harm anyone else and you don't harm yourself and you don't harm objects because even though they're just objects, they're yeah, she energy, right? Up. She actually didn't. She just like uh, got to sharpen yeah, it again yeah, and then yeah, keep going, yeah. right? But then she tore up the paper and other kids have like burst balloons and put their mm. anger on paper, put it in the balloon mm. and then mm. burst the balloon or hit mm. the balloon. And to watch the kids then walk out of these sessions feeling like, relief Mm. and you can see in their bodies they're not storing it anymore because their posture is held differently Mm. and i used to be the same as you i used to be like oh anger is a secondary emotion beneath it is grief Mm. or loss or pain or hurt and that might very well be the case it doesn't make anger any less a component to you know what we're feeling Mm. It just wants to be felt. Yeah. Boy, that's great. So this, what are some other... So you intuitively find these things case by case of each individual that comes in and experiences... You, you're essentially facilitating their healing 
by making them aware, self-aware, yeah. but in a kind of almost a subconscious, not trick. It's it's not tricking. <laughs> Magically <laughs> tricking them. But you are. It's you. You're, you're facilitating the shifts of their totally. of their of their trauma release. So I think for me, you know, I I was never taught how to deal with my trauma. I was never taught how to release emotions. This was something that I had to go on my own journey and really outsource certain things and read a lot and experience certain things. So, you know, until I did a program called Dancing Eros, I had no idea about movement and how amazing that was as a release and how how it actually, you know, had this direct effect and direct relationship to my inner child, you know, and and how to hold that space for it. And mm. I had to do all these things. And so not one thing's not going to work for everyone. You know, not every kid is going to scribble on a piece of paper and be like, wow, that felt good. Some kids are going to be like, that didn't feel good for me. So I guess I want to just expose the kids to as, as many tools and resources and then get them to figure out what works for you, mm. you mm. know, mm. because what works for you is what works for you. Mm. Yeah, right. Because, I, yeah, that's, it's very, very interesting. What works for you, perf- perf- personally, with releasing anger? You know, it totally, it's totally context-dependent and it's, yeah, it's also, yeah, it's definitely situational for me, mm. so. Going for a run's a good one. So, I hate running. Oh, there you go. Terrible it's for you. Awful. Like, I am just, like, not a runner. That, for me, is just painful. <laughs> but I definitely, I definitely like to dance. And that's been, you know, movement practice is huge mm. for me. Going to yoga every day has been huge for me. I mean, I know when I'm like holding onto like real sadness, mm. doing the nonlinear movement and allowing myself to cry. I had this, be- I have this beautiful yoga teacher and she came in to practice one day and I like felt something was a bit off and I kind of was lying there and she's like, okay, take a deep breath in. And then all of a sudden, she just didn't tell us to exhale. And I was like, oh, my God. When is she going to tell us to exhale? And then she's like, I'm sorry. You're going to have to give me a minute. And she broke down. And she was so real and authentic in that moment. And she's like, I've had a really crappy day. And I ask you guys to show up authentically in here and be yourselves and honor your practice. And I need to do the same, so I'm going to show you who I am. Right now, I'm having a really awful day. And you guys are just like, Let, just tell us to not hold our breath. We're <laughs> still holding. I had, firstly, the best practice ever. But secondly, I then felt so much permission in myself to go to yoga. And if I cry through the entire yoga session, I don't care. Because mm. I'm like, there is going to be someone else in this yoga session that's going to be feeling like crap, see me crying and being like, yeah. I can do that too, but that's what movement does. It brings up emotion so mm. that we can release it and let it go. And so that for me is a huge practice, but breath is amazing as well. Movement, I, I did this thing, this Vedic uh, thing called round in, which is just a series of asanas, which is like this, like, yeah. as you know, yoga positions. And they're very soft, gentle ones, but it essentially stimulates blood flow to, to your, pretty much every part of your anatomy. And after you always feel so soft and your meditations are so much deeper and like yummier because you, you just like, and, and you go on round retreats and do that for eight hours a day and you just release all this trauma, all these, you just cry for hours and all this shit just comes up. And by the end of it, you feel so clear. And so doing a little bit once every once in a while and knowing what tools you got when you need to use them. Because if you do too much rounding as well, you can release all this stuff and, and you're, in a, you're in a bit of a pickle, mm. particularly when you've got to go to work and whatnot. Right. And so I think it's also about understanding, okay, when is appropriate release? You know, when, when is appropriate? And like, yeah, sometimes you do need to hold things in because we all have to function. But as mm. long as you have a practice where you have a space. So I think why therapy um, is so important and why I believe in it so greatly is that it's such a neutral space for you to actually be held. And it's such a sacred relationship where a therapist is sitting there saying, you're not broken. I'm not here to fix you. But this space for this hour in this week is yours. Mm. You do with it whatever you want to. And we don't often give ourselves that space. So if you can have someone facilitate that for you, it will then give you enough tools to be able to take away and go and do it on your own. Mm. Um, And I think that's, yeah, I think I really believe in that work. And we're looking for that 
in any connection that we have. It's just space holding. I want to ask you about connection and human to human connection. And what do you think is the variations on the spectrum of why some people are compatible or relevant for one another at a particular time and why others aren't? For example, like if, you know, if you're really into something that the other person's really into at that point in their time, like me and you, we're into similar levels of chat and we've got mm. similar interests and, um, and so it's relevant, you know, like our conversation is enjoyable and nourishing because we're kind of exploring areas that we're, we're both interested in and finding new areas and we're both open. And, and then, but then say if we were to hang out with a really closed-minded person, and sure, I'm closed-minded in some ways too, but, you know, like of dire, dire, dire closed-mindedness, mm. we wouldn't really enjoy that relation so much. And so there's, there's a million variables in this and what in human connection what, what I don't even know if this question's answerable, but what are the areas that you would... What's the purpose of human connection when, when it works and when it doesn't? And when it doesn't, if we should try to make it work or just let it go? Or what the, what's the healthy boundaries? Okay. So I think there's a couple of things in that. Um, and it really comes down to, I guess, your, your belief on what the purpose of life is, right? Which is huge. Um, but in my opinion... I think we're all source energy. We're all one unified energy and we're all just manifestations of that one unified energy in order for it to experience itself. And if that is the purpose of life is for source to experience itself, then it needs polarity. It needs a spectrum, right? In order to see a shadow, you need a light that casts a shadow. In order for you to feel the relief of winter when it comes, you need like desperate summer heat to like really wish it away right in order for you to feel this ecstatic beautiful joy you need some sort of pain Mm. you know otherwise it just becomes mundane everything become you become accustomed to it's like people that are like you know super 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 wealthy and just have everything at their fingertips like are they happy you don't know Mm. right because they've become accustomed to things if they lost everything that would be huge trauma for them, Mm. how difficult that would be. And so I think when you're meeting with people that the mind is connecting and it's beautiful, then that experience is refining your ideas, building on them, growing on them. What a wonderful thing. When you're met with someone who's closed-minded or has a different belief system, it's the same experience, right? It's like, wow, I'm experiencing something that's in resistance. Mm. I can recognize that because I've experienced flow. Mm. I've Mm. experienced what that feels like Mm. to feel energized, you know? And so we're refining our experiences. They're all just learning. It's all just like part of knowledge and experience. No one is right or wrong. No, definitely not. But some relationships are more sustainable or effortless than others. Right. So then I think that comes back to like, okay, if, if one thing is just to experience, then what kind of experiences do we want? If there is no good and bad, it just means, okay, how do I want to feel mm. and what is my interaction? There we go. This is a good thing. Let's just share for personally. Like, yeah. what do I want to f- I'll ask myself first? <laughs> go on. <laughs> this is your space. It's your hour. You're the therapist. <laughs> um, so I should be asked. Uh, my, my, what do I want to experience? I want to experience um, unity and shared joy moments of looking into other people's eyes and seeing myself. I want to be challenged and um, and drawn the best out of, and th- there's a few. Okay, so you've named a friend, right? You've named someone that could be your friend, mm. someone that you know you can grow with, shared ideas, shared values, but that also challenges you. So that's great. But what makes it an intimate relationship? Getting vulnerable, like today with my friend um, Johnny. Yeah, he's. He's very, he's, he, he challenged me on a thing and it was really good. And, and, and like I, I got a bit cross and went toe to toe with him and it was a bit of a um, intellectual fisticuffs. And then I realized he had real good points and I realized that he was coming from a place of love. I knew he from the start he was, but I still had a thing to say. And, um, and so having someone that can hold space for you, even though you're getting cross at them, 
is fucking incredible. Like that's that I love that. There's someone that's got that state of consciousness to realize that I'm not actually literally a threat and he sees the bigger picture. And so therefore he, he, he sees what's going on with me. He actually probably knows, he can see what I'm doing better than what I can see what I'm doing. And I love that. That's what I would deem intimacy and real nourishing um, quality relationship that's far fucking better than just having a good time with someone. Beautiful. Yeah. That comes back to attachment. Uh oh. What do we want from our parents? Am I attached? <laughs> to Johnny, 100%. He's been on your podcast like five times. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, but it comes back to attachment, right? What do we want from our parents? Unconditional love. Mm. Mm. Why? Because we just want to be able to be exactly who we are and loved for exactly who we are so that we can throw a tantrum and it's our behavior that our parents don't like, but it's not us that they don't like, right? Mm. So when someone holds space for you and says, I'm here, I'm present, I love you no matter what, here's my boundary though, Mm. but I love you no matter what, I can witness you and hold space for you. You're much quicker to come to the realization, oh, cool. Mm. Mm. I feel comfortable to be vulnerable. I feel comfortable to evolve out of whatever state I'm in. Mm. And that's beautiful and that's intimacy. So there's a whole spectrum of things, but I think we flow between being the teacher and being the student. And so, you know, there's Mm. been many a time where, you know, that's what friendship for me is, is to like Mm. oscillate between growing and expanding together and helping each other and facilitating that growth. When it comes to, I guess, romantic relationships, there's an element of eroticism that's, that's built into that. And then it's not just about shared values and things that are similar and unconditional love and whatnot, it adds an element of extreme polarity in order for that to work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, erotic friction, erotic tension. And that is where it becomes a bit more complicated to understand compatibility. So if there's no contrast, there's no romance, or no, that's why twins don't want to kiss each other. Well, yeah, they're the same. One of the no. one of the reasons. One also, the, the fact that they're brothers I, and sisters. Yeah, I think yeah. I think it might be an evolutionary thing. Might be that. Yeah, but it's probably also <laughs> two same same. Yeah, it's too similar. But it's true. You look at like long term relationships, right? Like, why do they? Why do they eventually, you know, you you have the seven-year itch. You have the theory of, you know, you hit two years and then everything plateaus. Like, what is it about that? It's Mm. like what draws us to people in the first place is that mysticism, that discovery, that, like, I don't know who you are and I want to kind of understand you and Mm. dissect you. I want to see what we have. And then you're like, okay, but now I want to be – you know when you, like, meet someone, you're like, oh, my God, I love that footy team. And, oh, my gosh, I also Mm. really like that chocolate. That's my favorite chocolate. How do you know, oh, we must be meant to be together Mm. because we're so similar. And then you're, like, five years into a relationship and you're actually like, oh, my God – I fucking hate your chocolate now. Yeah, I hate your chocolate and I know who you are because I know you better than you know yourself. And then it becomes this true sameness that you lose the the balance of difference. Mm. And we seek to be so same that we lose that balance. And I think that the, I guess the best chance at a, a relationship that is balanced is one that Esther Perel talks about. And I think we've spoken about quite a bit is that that, that keen balance between autonomy and intimacy. Mm. And it's the same that we want for our securely attached children. Autonomy and safety. Autonomy and security. So we've, what's your experiential advice for someone that's hit that two-year plateau and how to navigate that if, it, if there was a generic blueprint? I think for every relationship it's going to be different, but there are definitely certain mantras that, I, that I've connected with within myself. So I think the first one would be, I'll never claim to know you because I, I don't even know myself wholly and fully and to the core of my truth of who I am. I'm still discovering what, what, who I am and that's continuing to evolve. I'm never going to catch up with myself in that Mm. way. And that's a beautiful experience. That's life. How can I ever put that on you as if I know you? Because I wrote a poem about, um, you know, I'll never claim to know you because every night you fall asleep and wake up and you've had all these dreams 
that are your own. How can I ever know what you've hmm. experienced, you know? And so always looking at my partner as a completely separate entity to myself. Um, I think beautiful. that would be my main one. You know, when you, you know, you've known someone for a long time, but then you see them across the room talking to someone else and you're like, oh my goodness, like mm. that's not f so familiar. And it's that feeling of like, I never want to feel too familiar with you because I know I'm always going to have something to learn about you. Wow. And then, so does that require creating more space in the relationship? I would say so. Time to oneself? Well, Esther Perel will talk about having a third. Right. in a relationship so and I think this is really interesting because a third can be a person right and that's where Polly Amory comes into it she writes a whole book on um, cheating called the state of affairs and why people seek out other relationships while they're in one currently and she I mean the basis of it is that they want to experience themselves so how did I feel when I first met someone? Mm -hmm. I brought my best self to that. I was invigorated. I brought all this. Now that you know me, I, I don't feel, you know, worthy or I don't feel like I'm exciting or whatever. And then I meet someone else at work and they see me as someone new and exciting. And now I feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeking out of that ex externally is a part of yourself that you feel like is lost. It's not about the other person. Right, that's very true. Right? And so I think that if you can already create that within your relationship, so the third doesn't need to be a person. It can just be how you feel autonomously. So I'm going to go and do yoga and meditate and connect and go on adventures and go hiking and I don't need you to do the same things as me all the time. There needs to be some sameness or shared values. Um you know, obviously we want to do some things together. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but essentially, like, if I can go away and bring back knowledge to you and you can go away and experience things and bring back knowledge to me, what a beautiful mm. thing. Then we still got something to work with. Mm. But if I spend every single day with you on the couch watching the same TV show or reading the same book or going to the same yoga class or whatever, What's the point? What are we learning from each other? Mm. Comes back to that source energy. We want to experience ourselves as separate. Wow. So that's like this. What's the combination again? This safety, but also um, autonomy. Autonomy. Yeah. Safety and autonomy. So you want to feel secure in this. And, and so if someone was confronted with the choice to continue it like a two year plateau or go on to that, like, new romance that's the stimulation and reminding themselves of how good they are again and all those kind of things what would you say is in the psyche of an individual that would choose one over the other i.e why would you choose to go back and what what does that say about you versus if you didn't so there's a couple of things and i don't think there's a blanket rule for everything i think in one sense um you're in a in a per in a relationship, there's two people, a dual energy. So if one person wants to then go and seek autonomy and the other person doesn't, that's going to be really hard to go back to, right? Mm -hmm. The one person wants to stay at the plateau and just keep doing the same thing and the other person wants to go out and feel invigorated and find themselves, that's already going to create a tension mm. that maybe is too hard to come back to. If both people want to do, that's where the shared values come in. Because if you both value growth mm. and expansion. Well, you wouldn't come back right. to plateau. Who would want to come back to that? It would right. be like, it would be a new, the growth thing. Right. It would be a shared agreement, right? Um, I think people that want to come back to the plateau or are too scared to go to the next level of, of, of finding autonomy within themselves and finding that joy within themselves um, and that newness, are the people maybe that are feeling insecurely attached and so they're worried about what's on the other end. And there's that comes back to self-belief. I can't have better, I can't do better, I'm not enough, I'm this, I'm right. that, I don't have enough value and therefore I'm reliant on just what this relationship is. Gotcha, but what if people, what if those two people wanted to go back into that relationship um, and like what does that say about someone that wants to because everyone every relationship you're going to hit that 
plateau, right? Mm. And so what you're going to start another one and then hit that plateau again and then just So it's a matter it. of perspective. What does that plateau look like? Because plateaus are beautiful. You can explore a hell of a lot on a plateau, you know, <laughs> look at Table Mountain. It's huge. It's flat, but it's huge. And the expanse is wide and there's such a beauty in intimacy in that way. I read this article last year and it was the most beautiful like romantic thing that I heard and it was this guy that wrote about his wife and he said when I first met my girlfriend she was 21 and she was a teacher and she's this I then married a 25 year old um, woman who evolved into this I Mm. now sit across from a, a, a wife at a table who's 29 and holds my baby and you know and it was this beautiful evolution and Esther Perel talks about you can have many different relationships in your lifetime. Some of them will be with the same person. Mm-hmm. And then you look at your relationship. It doesn't have to be that, that spark and that energy at the beginning because also that's a lot of chemicals working and at play and, you know, they say love is blind and, like, what, you know, what does that mean? I mean, there's a real significance there. We, we tend to look for the things that we want that are important and we blind ourselves to the things that maybe we realize might not work in the future. Mm. And so it's a matter of accepting like, great, I've reached this plateau. What a beautiful thing. What, what else is there to explore on this level? Mm. Mm. Cause there is a, there's a, there's a different experience on that level. Like you can explore new things. There's, there's subtler dimensions. There's kind of richer, more beautiful dimensions. I think, and you're more aware of what's going on in that landscape than you are in the kind of heightened state of, which is still lovely. They're both great states, but I think I, for me, it's a maturity thing. It's like anything, yeah. thing get, things get richer over time if you, if you contribute value to them again and again. That's what my dad's always said. There's like, you, can, you create value in something by contributing, giving it value again and again. And the more value you give it the same thing, it's the richer and richer that golden orb is going to be. Like for my mom and dad's relationship, it's just like this ever-expanding golden orb so that the the density of that's supreme compared to like a new a new little relationship that's a small little golden orb that's it i mean when you dive into the ocean right and you just swim on the surface you're like great this is new i've got mountain there and i've got this there and i've got like ocean there and clouds there and wow there's people and you're just like so stimulated Mm. and then you drop your head under and it's quite silent and beautiful but you open your eyes and whoa, there's like another depth to like this beautiful world that mm. is, you know, great. And then you go deeper and deeper and deeper and things just like evolving and living mm. in the most beautiful way. And so it's true. Like mm. it's all a matter of perspective. And I think if you can ask yourself, how do I want to bring myself to each moment, to each relationship, to, you know, to myself, to this world, to this life, if I can do it authentically, if I can do it with integrity, if I can make mistakes and laugh about it and have fun with it, then like, and I find someone who has those shared values, cares if I don't feel, you know, as sexy as I did on the first date and you don't look at me that way because now I see that you look at me with respect and revere and mm. understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how beautiful is that? <laughs> so beautiful how we can discover more things of the same people and so would you say it's this thing of it's almost like this shared agreement that like you're both willing to i mean first have the similar values but also this willingness which i suppose is one of the values to grow and and make it work yeah and also to be flexible in that like you know we're not going to be the same people we were 20 years ago five years ago, two minutes ago. So, you know, I think this is part of the reason why I have a hard time with the concept of marriage Mm. because you make an agreement and then 20 years down the track, you're like, all right, I guess I'm going to keep making this agreement with you because I said I would 20 years ago. Mm. And I would much rather be in a partnership where I say, I choose you each day and it's a choice for me to be in this. And I choose to see you evolve and change and flow with that change rather than keep you stuck in what I thought you should have been by now. Mm. People have these like big midlife crises or crises or, you know, quarter life or whatever because their expectations and their reality are not in alignment. 
if you can go into a relationship and say, I expect nothing other than for you to be yourself, because I want to be myself, then like, there's no way you're not going to have room to grow and evolve and change. Mm. And therefore that's always going to be new. Mm. You will always have that. Mm. But it does start with shared values. Mm. What's some examples of some shared values? I think growth is one of them, you know, being able to, to have a shared value of like wanting to adventure internally, externally. That's number one, you know, for me and the ability to self-develop. And so, you know, um, yeah, I guess that eating well, healthiness, um, traveling or experiences. I mean, you look at people that get together and then like, you know, four years down the track, they're like, wait, I don't want kids. And you're like, wait, what? I thought I did. Hmm. What, what, what happened there? And it's like, well, you could have avoided this if you had had that discussion. And I know it's like a hard discussion to have, but if, if having a family is part of your value and you have these like deep family values, then having a person that's on hmm. board with that hmm. probably going to be a better outcome hmm. than trying to make something work with someone that it doesn't want to. Having said that, I, I think those things, I've seen examples where they've changed. That's definitely. a pretty, pretty awful example. Yeah. Why? Because a lot of people maybe don't think they want kids until they have their own and then they're like, wow, I love this experience. Or, the, or, or you change what you want and you change what you value. Because you, realize, because you fall in love with someone that you're like, holy fuck, I want to make children of you. Right. And create a mini you. <laughs> So narcissistic, our society. <laughs> like a mini, no mini lover, not mini self. <laughs> still you know, weird. Yeah, right? yeah. It's true. Still it's weird. Like, I fucking love you so much. I want to make a mini version of you that I can double my love on. Yeah. It's no, weird. no, it's not. That's but it's a negative, beautiful. It's it beautiful. Is. It's yeah. Beautiful. I think right? it's the ultimate expression of love because you, you're you're creating. It's fucking super important. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't still be here if they weren't right. doing it. It's beautiful, and I totally agree with you. I think values can change or evolve or refine over time, mm. um, and so again, it's about flexibility. Like if you can allow that, you mm. know. But generally, yeah, generally, I think if we can go into something that we both believe in how we want to be in a relationship mm. like what are our relationship values mm. openness honesty trust mm. loyalty whatever mm. it is that's your value yeah really important communication is a really big one being Huge. openly communicating yeah um one, one one thing i really liked recently talking to my friend about is this idea of non-marriage but celebrating love on milestones which is just an anniversary but like I think it's because marriage is such a projection of the future and, and it kind of like puts a bit of a unrealistic expectation on something that you never know about because everything is just day by day, really. Like what, what, is, what is anything but that? I like the sentiment of it and a part of me still wants to do it because I like the celebrating the commitment you're choosing to make and it's pretty powerful. But what I think is more powerful, more beautiful, more true is every five, 10 years or whenever you want to have a, like a, a love party or an anniversary party for you to like after 10 years of being together with all the people that have supported you along the way, bring them all together and just have a good old fucking marriage one, marriage two, or, you know, not, they're not marriages, they're anniversary party, love parties and celebrating what you've, what you've developed up until this point rather than just projecting into the future and what you want to I mean, both are great. I'm just saying it's a suggestion. I totally agree with you. And I think you look at like, all right. I know you're not forcing it. It's fine. I like how you went in tears. I'd be like, I don't know. It's a suggestion. I'm talking to the church about it, making sure that they do it. (laughs) But I think we look at all the cultures around the world. We all have rituals, right? And Mm. ceremonies. And it's what creates beautiful intention. It, Mm. you know, creates connection. Mm. It fosters all these beautiful things. So I'm not against, Mm. you know, the celebration. I think it's actually really beautiful to be able to, I mean, you know, every full moon, by the way, it's a full moon, Mm. which is really nice. Mm. But every full moon, I'll do a little ceremony and set intentions for myself and do reflections and same with the new moon. And that's for me, like my own practice and then daily intentions. If you've got you know, a partnership that you want to celebrate and then continue to set intentions together of the way you want to live and mm. create and give back to this world. What a beautiful mm. thing. Mm. Um, One I really like is creating a mechanic in this where it's normal to talk about the uncomfortable things, i.e. 
it's expected. Like you almost have a check-in every Wednesday night. And like, so what's going on? Anything that I fucked up on or like where, where are we at? Because it's, it's kind of gives people a, where the baseline standard is we're going to talk about any, any, anything that's under the surface that needs to come. Because it's like that same thing of like if we traumatize each other, we're causing stress for each other, then that needs to come out. And I like the idea of normalizing that. Of course you're saying that, license to, rather than this thing of which you see, it seems to be in a lot of relationships this um this rigidity gets formed and then resentment and such and such yeah definitely and i think it comes back to being able to see someone not as a projection of you but as a separateness you know man that's a huge one huge wow Mm. you have your own feelings your own experiences you Mm. know i'll give you an example um you know my partner is moving here from overseas Mm. and it's beautiful. So yesterday we got a house and, you know, he got accepted into his uni course and here I am. And I'm like, yes, I'm so excited. I'm celebrating. Like this is the best thing ever. And I've got this like amazing feeling in my body. And I speak to him on the phone and he says to me, I'm really sorry. Like, can we talk a bit later or can we just message? And I said, well, what's going on for you? And he said, I'm feeling really emotional. And I was like, sure, no worries. So we hung up the phone and I said to him, well, how do you, and then he told me that he got into his course and I said, how do you feel? And he said, I have a heavy heart. Mm. And I said, immediately I went into my own trigger, like, oh my God, is he having second thoughts? What do you mean you're having a heavy heart? This is the most (laughs) exciting thing ever. Like (laughs) what's going on? And he's like, well, no, actually this is really hard for me because as exciting as this is for us, I'm leaving my family behind. I'm leaving my friends behind. I'm leaving everything that I've known behind. And that is something that's causing me Mm -hmm. this bittersweet moment. Mm -hmm. And so then I could say, wow, I see you. Mm. Totally understand why you're retreating or why you're pulling away or why you're doing what you're doing. But if we don't perspective take, we're going to get into those resentments. We're going to build it up. Fuck, man. I've been guilty of that shit. Oh, we all have. We all do it, don't we? It's funny, and that's to do with insecure attachments, or I would say so. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. It's it's so liberating when you do the later though. What you're saying of the I see you, I have the perspective on the other because it's you feel so you realise that it's not about you, and it's it's the same thing I felt with creating Soma, this Soma Unlimited, this media brand. Is as soon as I stopped realizing it was about me and it was just this desire that was bubbling through me, I found so much joy in doing it. Like, because it wasn't, it wasn't a weight on my shoulders. I was just like enacting what I was charmed to do. And so I'm just trusting this kind of like flow intelligence that's coming through me and, and facilitating it. And so I feel so much lighter. It's not wrapped up in who I am or my identity. It's just, I'm just playing with it. And that comes back to ego, right? And I find that you know, on my podcast, when I talk to different creatives and we talk about, you know, fear and it's completely attached to ego, Mm. but the commonality between all of them is when I realized that this was flowing through me and it's not of me, Mm. it's not mine, it's flowing through me. I've released it and it became this beautiful thing that resonated with other people Mm. because other people aren't identifying with you. They're identifying with that experience, that understanding, that mm. shared unity, that, ex- you know. Mm. I, I think, like, it comes back to, like, when I used to write my poetry. It was, like, a completely therapeutic process for me to get my thoughts out, write it out. Sometimes I just wrote the things that I felt like I needed to hear in that moment, you know, in that moment where I felt like everything was unraveling. I just wrote. And then I was like, wow, is that mine? Like, did I, did I write that? But it really helped me. And then when I put it out there, I had other people say like, thank you so much. Like I'm going through a breakup and this really helped me. Or like, I'm going through a really hard time. And like that poem, like I, I felt that. And I was like, mm. cool. It's cause those feelings are universal. And mm. so, <laughs> you know, when you don't attach to your, you know, it's, it's me, it's me. It's about me. It's, it's a much more beautiful, light, liberating perspective, isn't it? You realize you're a part of the whole. And that's what we do with mm. continuously coming back to that attachment mm. thing, you mm. know. My children are not me. They're just part of the expression of the universe. My partner is not me. 
it's part of the expression of the universe and so I can just look at you and just be in awe of who you are mm. and the way you cope mm. I don't have to accept everything as you know mm. we're not saying you know stay in abusive relationships we're saying I accept you and I see you and if I can facilitate and teach and learn and we can do this together then beautiful and if not that's okay that's not our journey mm. so beautiful it reminds me of this moment, which we'll probably wrap on, is I remember with someone in the past, a previous partner, I had this moment of absolute aha and awe and wonder and tranquility and peace of realizing that I'm never going to lose them because I am them and we, and we are just different expressions of the same thing. And what a beautiful temporary experience, but the essence of each of us is eternal and what a dance we're in and it just felt so peaceful about it this calm knowing that the essence that's radiating between me and my lover is absolutely eternal and it just made me feel so light like I didn't need to have any attachment to her or need anything but just just joyous it's quite strange it's beautiful hmm. it's like that's love right hmm. Hmm. where you see the absolute depths of the universe in the eyes in the way they look at you. It's probably the best experience we can have. Agreed. <laughs> thank you so much for all your sharing and all the knowledge. I just loved it. I feel like we could talk forever. Yeah, thank you. Um, but we've got to wrap up because one has to sleep. Yes. <laughs>